You are listening to How We Got Loud. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm your host, Chris Leonard, and we are on a journey together exploring stories about the people, technology, and passion that built the history of live sound. Today I'm talking with Mark Gander. JBL was one of the earliest and largest manufacturers of speaker components and cabinets. Mark Gander spent 41 years at JBL starting in 1978 with various roles through the years, such as Applications Engineer, VP of Marketing, VP of Engineering, and most recently, Director of JBL Technology. He is also known as JBL's historian and often just called JBL Guru. In my opinion, he was one of the most influential and centrally connected people when it comes to speakers with the largest sound companies in the world. He was directly responsible for marketing, product development, and connecting companies like Claire Brothers, Maryland Sound, Shoco, Stanall Sound, A1 Audio, Schubert Systems, and many more with JBL in the late 70s and early 80s. This was a time when all the sound companies had to make their own proprietary systems. Mark has a very unique perspective on our industry because he was at the center of the live sound industry for so many years. Sound companies needed a symbiotic relationship with a speaker manufacturer to develop, engineer, and design their systems. Mark Gander was the catalyst of that for JBL. I wanted to experience music and being able to do that from the tiniest club with a couple of cabaret or Eon speakers in it, all the way to standing on the the truss work with, with Ron Borthwick at the US Festival with with 180 S4s, being able to interact with those professionals that really know how to do live sound and watch and learn and maybe make a little contribution, even if it's just going back and talking to a Don Keeler, a a Doug Button or a Mark Engerbretson in engineering and saying, hey, here's what I saw and I bet if we did this or what do you think about that and letting that percolate and evolve and turn into you know a little change in a transducer or a new system or a new system concept you you hope you you uh, set a tone for what can be done you hope you leave a legacy in terms of what the products are how who they touched when you were there but also what they mean to the history of the business and the ongoing evolution of the business. I hope you're enjoying this podcast journey with me, or maybe this is your first time. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss another episode or go back and check out some others. There's a lot more info, pictures, and stories on HowWeGotLoud.com. Also, I want to thank Earthworks for sending me the new Icon podcasting microphone. It looks awesome and sounds great. This is a long episode, and I thought about breaking it up into two parts, but decided just to keep it as one long journey through Mark's amazing career. It's very hard to summarize 41 years in two hours. Though we may have only scratched the surface, we were able to dig into many facets of the JBL history. I want to give a special shout out to David Morgan, who I interviewed twice already for helping me set up this connection. Let's jump in now and hear my conversation with Mark Gander.
So, Mark, I don't think it's very common uh, for someone to be at one company for uh, for 40, <laughs> 41 years, yeah. uh, let alone in the manufacturing side to be at one company for that long. I think that's incredible. Um, uh, but I, before we get to that time there, let's let's talk about how, how does one end up at, at, at JBL? What was what was that roadmap to get there for you? Uh being a musician and then realizing, you know, like so many that I wasn't good enough. Uh, and, uh, so I, I, I played a number of musical instruments in grade school and high school and thought I wanted to be a professional musician, but also had a, a, a big interest in science and did well in science in high school. And so picked a college that had a variety of stuff that had a, a good music department, had a good engineering and science departments, and had good activities and stuff going on. So I could pursue a lot of different stuff and going to Syracuse university in upstate New York from having grown up in the, in the middle of uh, rural New Jersey, I, you know, started to take courses and it was the early seventies and I was doing a lot of um, uh, alternative activities besides school uh, just to, to uh, enjoy the, uh, the social nature of the day uh, uh, but I did, uh, start and get interested in the college radio station and from the college radio station and, uh, I, uh, learning how to, to do both on air time and to take care of the transmitter and, and do technical stuff. I found out about the university union, which was a student fee funded, uh, activities group and that they had the concert board and that concert board funded, uh, money for a PA system, also funded a, a big student run uh, video system and, and cable system that that actually uh, uh, went across the dorms. So there was a lot of technical opportunities uh, in addition to actually trying to stay in school and, and get decent grades and in, in, uh, in a, a wide variety of courses that I took. And again, I took took courses I, I was still taking organ lessons. I, I took uh, electronic music. Uh, I, 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 you know, uh, I took a lot of stuff that would make you, uh, you know, as I sort of learned, wow, I like this radio thing. Oh, this is PA system. That's really interesting. I can work with musicians even if I can't be a performing musician and be good enough. And uh, I ended up working for the, uh, the audio services department at the university as well as volunteering and doing the uh, PA system at the Jabberwocky Club and at the bigger concerts using the, the student-funded uh, uh, PA system equipment that, that we had there and, and working on the, the video cable system as well. So that expanded and, you know, my grades weren't that great and I had to figure out what to do. So I ended up uh, going to the arts. I was in the arts and sciences school, actually. I wasn't actually in the engineering school. I was in the physics department originally in, in the arts and sciences school. And I, uh, the, uh, the arts and sciences department had a write your own program thing. So I created this uh, degree I called audio technology and I put all these courses together, not only the, the music courses and the engineering courses and the physics courses, but I took audiology courses and speech and hmm. hearing physiology and, you know, architecture stuff and anything to do with, you know, from with room acoustics. And uh, so I sought out 
any kind of courses that that contributed to an audio education. And because my dad was paying the fees to go to an independent <laughs> university, you know, they'll, in, in, as long as you get some decent grades, they'll find some way to get you a degree. And I actually yeah. got a bachelor's degree and and uh, uh, turned it into a BS degree because I a bachelor of science rather than just a bachelor of arts, even though I was in the arts and sciences school. Um, and and uh, continued while I was at school and for a year after school to work for the audio services. I actually designed the very first audio studios and WAER radio studios at the Newhouse building. Sam Newhouse, the publishing magnate, funded a giant uh, uh, communications department building at Syracuse. And we got to build uh, an eight-track studio and build all the all these studios for the radio station. And there wasn't anybody else that knew anything about it. And I raised my hand and was getting paid, you know, as a student, but, uh, you know, as a student job to, to work in audio services. So I got to specify the Neve console on the Ampex MM1100 state machine and, and, you know, pick some effects. Oh, let's get an Eventide instant phaser. Let's get, you know, <laughs> this is literally, you know, since this is 1972 or so and early days of recording and stuff. So all that reading of, DB and recording engineer producer in Studio Sound magazines and joining the AES, the Audio Engineering Society, paid off. And I was able to specify that stuff and actually wire that stuff. I I got to spend the summer of 1972 uh, both running the radio station. Five of us ran the radio station 24 hours a day while the students were all gone in the summer. And I spent it working at audio services. Uh, wiring patch bays and preparing to do the installs at Newhouse. Uh, uh, I guess that was '74 because that was it was actually the summer that that Nixon resigned. So that was my uh, and that was my graduation <laughs> gift in 1974 as well. So I, in, in other words, my undergraduate school at Syracuse gave me an opportunity to get a broad education from the college itself but also these extracurricular things, the concert board, doing sound at the club Jabberwocky, doing sound for some of the medium-sized concerts, uh, obviously the big concerts they'd bring in, Claire Brothers or whoever was touring sure. with the actor. But all that contributed to my to my education because I'd go watch Claire Brothers set up in the men's gym for hot tuna and set up their four-way system or, or watch you know all the different PA companies come in with the touring acts as well as use our gear at the Jabberwocky 150 or 200 seat club. And we do PA at, at uh, some of the music venues like the, the Krauss college auditorium and whatever. And I did sound for everybody from, from uh, Thelonious Monk to, to uh, uh, Randy Newman to, you know, uh, acoustic acts, rock acts, folk acts, all sorts of people. What, and what, what kind of gear did you guys specifically have for the live stuff? Uh, it was it was Altec. It was uh, there was a local Altec contractor, uh, and you know so it was a uh, sevens uh, and a twos and and the early uh, uh, Altec multi track uh, multi multi channel console. A lot of the stuff was just patched together fifteen ninety twos, the old uh, rack mount mixers. Yep. Um, as I as I graduated in 1974 and was looking for work, I uh, worked for a band uh, and that band was booked by a booking agency out of Boston, uh, Ted Curlin's agency at the time, All American Talent. 
and we had a little sound company. I had the band's PA, which was a pair of A7s with bigger horns and bigger drivers, and an Altec 220 and some some monitors and racks of you know some DC 300 Crown amplifiers. And actually, uh, uh, to drop a name, Will Perry, who went on to to uh, uh, to develop or, or to to be one of the principals at the SBL uh, comp install company. He had a PA with JBL Perkins bins and radial horns, and he would do his touring. And then we'd put both systems together for bigger concerts and shows. And I did that for that year after uh, uh, college, 74 to 75, uh, while I was interviewing with Claire Brothers and interviewing with Bob Goldstein at, at Maryland Sound and uh, other places and doing a little bit of recording work and and trying to you know, make a living at audio. There was a minor um, uh, economic downturn in, in 74, 75. So I never actually hmm. broke in to the business uh, in terms of having a, a full-time gig. Uh, so by the spring of, of 76, I said, well, I'm tired of plugging in Canon connectors and lifting heavy objects for a living, you know, cause it's, it was, roadie and barely technician and not not uh, you, know, <laughs> you had to do everything not just for the band but for the pa company as well so sure. i applied to graduate schools and uh, got into a number of different graduate schools and picked georgia tech I, and i picked graduate schools that had some kind of audio or, or acoustics program and georgia tech had a guy named marshall leach who uh, wrote a bunch of papers about uh, transient intermodulation distortion and uh, you know, ha- had a uh, undergraduate class in audio and ha- had a graduate student position, and I was able to get that graduate student position. Uh, and go, uh, they made me go, go the summer of '75 to take some courses because I didn't have a full engineering degree, just to prove that I could do the engineering courses. And then did a a year and a half uh, of getting a master's degree and they at Georgia tech had a program called audio technology, hmm. audio engineering, I guess. Uh, uh, and that, so I got that and it was the same kind of interdisciplinary program. I took, uh, architectural pro- uh, courses in, in acoustics. And I took, uh, I, I took a multiple courses in the different schools at Georgia, Georgia tech, in addition to my anchor master of science and electrical engineering electrical engineering program so i'm curious so when you said you were interviewing with like msi and claire um was it just the economic reason why you weren't getting hired at the time i I didn't have that great a resume either you know and i'd only done you know little club sound and little regional touring sound uh so the opportunities didn't you know come together i didn't have any any you know uh and you know in in hindsight i don't think i was really that good a live sound engineer you know, I did, you know, I did tons of gigs for Orleans and, you know, he was, he was uh, breaking out of the regional s- sound at that time. I did jazz stuff for Gary Burton. I did, uh, you know, uh, Muddy Waters and, you know, all lots of lot, a variety of little acts. And it, again, it was little typically, you know, 800 to 1500 or 2000 right. uh, audience size PA and size gigs. Um, you know, curiously, but after I'd accepted and was just about to leave for for Georgia from upstate New York, 
where I was living in Syracuse, uh, I did get the call from Goldstein to, to go out and do, uh, to, to, to do, uh, George Benson tour. And I said, Nope, I've, I've already committed, you know, <laughs> but that was the call, you know, that was a call I wanted all year, you know, right. year and a half was, was to get uh, the opportunity to do, to prove myself on a real, you know, national tour. Sure. So, um, pre going uh, to Georgia, Georgia tech, um, what was what was driving you most in audio? You said you didn't think you were that great of an engineer or whatever, but what was what was your drive? Was it the the tech side, engineering side, or was it the mixing side? Like what what was fueling that passion for you early? It was on? it was the same thing I felt when I was working at that college club, Jabberwocky, uh, and working with the band that had the, the the that the PA was what I used with with the All American Talent Agency. It was a band called Country Granola. It was a country bluegrass band that was connected to to Kenny Kosick and Andy Statman and, and a bunch of uh, bluegrass guys, Tony Trishka on banjo. And he was in that band actually for a while. And I really enjoyed being part of a team, part of a group, uh, supporting a band, but or or at a club, you know, running a club. I in, really enjoyed that that camaraderie, that team energy. Uh, again, whether it was at a club, whether it was a, a band organization touring, uh, uh, so that was my juice, you know, since I couldn't play myself, I could do this other role, this technical role. And, you know, talking to, to people over the years, you know, even people all the way up to, to the David Morgans of the world, you know, people that couldn't you know make it as a musician in their rock band though a, a lot of all of us you know had some kind of of band that made it regionally or maybe even nationally or were working on the you know the the crew or the roadies for those kind of bands that 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 same kind of that energy that that tour production energy that comes from uh being around the creation of of great music and the energy of of uh, of a a band and a public performance and the the enjoyment of people that's 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 it for me yeah that's awesome um so uh, you mentioned uh, in one of your your profiles so you had multiple offers from manufacturers at the time after you left school uh, or were uh, you, yeah you i was apply? i was finishing uh, graduate school in 1976 in the summer and I, you know, wrote, wrote a bunch of letters to tons of people. And, you know, I got everything from Howard Holzer at Haco, who, who built disc, disc cutters, a, you know, a very small guy said, I'd like you to come work for me, uh, all the way up through both Altec and JBL and, uh, Panasonic, uh, in Northern New Jersey and Secaucus. Um, but Altec and JBL, in addition to Panasonic, all three of those majors gave me quote unquote plant trips. I had, I had a plant trip with, with Motorella as well to go to Chicago to, to work on Paizio tweeters. So I had a, I had a variety of, of, uh, interviews and, uh, from those got a number of job offers. Uh, and uh, it came down to the last two were Altec and JBL, both in California that I'd always always wanted to migrate to from the East Coast. And obviously those two are big names in audio and speakers specifically. Altec wanted me to work on electronics uh, and JBL wanted me to work on speakers. And after the interview, I could also see that Altec was 
teetering a, a little bit in terms of its stability, whereas JBL was was growing and and being very successful in the in the mid 70s. And also JBL wanted me to work on speakers. And I said, well, geez, not everybody does speakers. There's a zillion guys working, doing electronics, even audio electronics. So I made another prescient decision to say, okay, why don't I take the JBL job? It gets me to California, gets me in audio, and gets me in something that, you know, there's uh, maybe more more uh, availability of, of something to, to, to make a career in. And it gotcha. turned out it worked okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when you showed up at JBL, um, it was still very much component-based stuff. It wasn't, you know um, – um, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but from a from a uh, from a live standpoint, right? I know there was probably studio monitors and stuff at the time that were complete enclosures. But what was the landscape of what was available at the time, and where what was their focus at that time? Well, the big deal was studio monitors. It, it had migrated to complete package systems and studio monitors, and studio monitors were just exploding in the real pro business but also in Asia, particularly Japan, as uh, the hi-fi speaker of choice. It, JBL had the magic because it had all the, the ancient history uh, from the 50s and 60s in terms of, of hi-fi systems, the Paragon and the Hartsfield and, and all sorts of smaller systems. And, and the design emphasis that JBL had put on made all these signature looking as well as sounding loudspeaker systems. Uh, 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 for the hi-fi business, the pro business didn't even exist until 69, other than doing sort of specialty pro stuff, making monitors for Capitol Records. Uh, in 69, they constituted a pro business and they took all the, the, uh, a lot of the, the components, painted them gray, gave them 2000 series monitored, uh, designations and made a pro line so they could sell that pro line against Altec and sell it in different distribution than the music store distribution uh, that was selling the the K and D and F series musical instrument loudspeakers that was that were OEM Defender but were also sold over the counter to music stores to sell as replacement guitar speakers because that was the other huge business the the, um, the F's uh, had turned into the K series in 71 or 72 that may have had a little higher power handling. And that was what most of the tour sound people were buying because that was the stuff that JBL put the emphasis on being able to ha handle the most power, whereas these gray frame variants of the consumer parts or the musical instrument parts, uh, they, uh, they were for, for competing with Altec. And there wasn't the emphasis on the giant power handling and the ruggedness. So the, the JBL K-series stuff, uh, improving the original F-series stuff, uh, had higher power handling, handled the power. But going back to the Lansing days in the late 40s, you know, the JBL designs were four-inch voice coils, bigger than the Altec three-inch voice coils or the Electro-Voice two-and-a-half-inch voice coils on the cone speakers and the two- or three-inch voice coils on the compression drivers, well, JBL had the big 2440, uh, which was a four-inch voice coil. Had bigger magnets, bigger voice coils, bigger power dissipation, bigger efficiency. So people discovered JBL. 
and a lot of the you know, the, um, the the musical sound contractors, the Claire's and the Shelkos and the the uh, the, the early sound company people, uh, JBL would talk to them. JBL would sell them the parts, whereas Altec kind of looked down their nose at them because they had their 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 national and international contracting network sold up, and they had very tight distribution of the products and 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 even though it was technically illegal they kind of tried to enforce regional uh, 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 separate franchises and territories for the individual dealers so uh, you know the, the the joke was in quotes baggy pants contractors well those were the Altec guys that had the regional franchises and in most cases they didn't want to hear about musicians uh, uh, hmm. Uh, Altec did try to to build their version of musical instrument stuff, and they you know they packaged day sevens into more portable boxes, and and came up with that twelve twenty mixer, and and did some work there. But it, it never really the culture at Altec was still focused on the sound contracting installer business because they were going gangbusters at that. So Altec didn't you know that. Didn't really uh, build the relationships as much with the the early tour sound companies, the early sound musical touring contractors, and JBL had the had the parts and wanted the business, and uh, you know sold the parts. Uh, they you know in the the early days they would sell the the, the boxes too, the scoop bins, the sugar scoops, twenty forty five twenties and thirties, and and later after Cal Perkins invented the the uh, Perkins bins of 45, 50, and 60, and JBL bought those designs and, and built those. Uh, but again, those parts, you had to look at the catalog and you had to pick which woofer to put in there. Am I going to put a 2205 15-inch with a paper dome in there, or am I going to put a, a D130 or D140 or later K130 or K140? Well, that one has a higher power handling rating. And proof be known they didn't blow up as much because there was more emphasis being put on those because there was huge business selling the guitar speakers in the late sixties, not just to Fender, but to custom and son and, you know, pick, pick a name of a, a, a prominent guitar amplifier manufacturer in the late sixties. And they had the option of upgrading their Jensen's or whatever they were, was the stock speaker to a JBL D one thirty D one forty or and and Altec too. Altec sold some of their speakers to those same people, but that's where the the PA business grew from because those same PA companies, uh, I'm sorry, those same uh, uh, guitar amp manufacturers started to build PA boxes first, just column boxes, and later, I don't know if you know about the early Sun Coliseum PA. Uh, well, I, I know a little bit about them. It yeah. was an early. I mentioned that Altec 1220 because I used that in the early 70s. But but Sun had a system called the Coliseum PA, and it had a box that was s sort of simultaneous. I don't even know if it was a precursor or simultaneous with the the Tycho Bray box. Uh, it was a box with two 15s in it and a bullet in the corner and a separate box with a JVL serpentine lens. 2390 wavy plate lens and then they had this uh, a, a multi multi-channel mixer and uh, amplifier modules and that was uh, uh, but, but the point is that all the 
all the guitar manufacturers made PAs. First, they were sure vocal master type columns and a and a simple powered mixer, uh, but it evolved into bigger stuff for some of the manufacturers. And I mentioned Sun in particular because they're a, a seminal one. And uh, that's that gear is what uh, led to the success of JBL to catering to the music side of things. And then in the late 60s, when Claire and Shoko and other people like like Tycho Bray started to get in the tour business, they went and, you know, put a bag of money on the desk and said, I, you know, I want to buy a franchise. JBL was very uh, controlling of their business, particularly on the hi-fi side. They were a supporter of the fair trade retail uh, management, which which was legal in the 60s. You could designate pricing and the manufacturer could stipulate a resale price and the the retailer had to support that retailer retail price and if a dealer sold below that retail price they could actually legally be be cut off without getting sued by the 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 uh the retailer so fair trade was a big deal jbl had a bad reputation actually with the dealers because they were so controlling and disciplined about that but on the pro side pro the pro stuff started in 69 they set up their franchises for contracting. JBL at the time had had electronics, you know, so they could field a full line like Altec did for those contractors. Um, and they ended up being able to set up these franchises. And because the Tour Sound guys weren't getting in the way of the contractors or bidding any install jobs, it was purely to sell to them for their own business. They would buy the speakers and the boxes, and soon they found out that the boxes weren't built to the standard of touring, so people had to design and build their own touring boxes <clears throat> using the JBL parts. So um, prior to you getting there, was you know uh, companies were already buying you know individual drivers and stuff like that from from JBL. Um, was JBL involved at all at that time before you got there in helping these companies actually design their boxes, or was it purely up to these sound companies to design their own box and just pick a driver that they thought worked with their box or match that up? I would say it was almost totally that way. The the regional managers there were three regional sales managers across the the U.S that handled, you know, the East Coast guy handled Claire and the uh, Central guy handled Shoko in Texas and the West Coast guy handled Tycho Bray, uh, you know, and and many others in each of those regions. Um, and they would just tell them, you know, hey, next year we're coming out, I guess, I think it was 72, maybe 73, the K-Series came out and it's going to handle more power because those guys would come to them and be buying tons of recone kits and trying to get some of them under warranty because saying, hey, this stuff isn't handling the power you're saying it's handling. Well, hmm. then the argument was, well, you're putting more power than you <laughs> say you are into them. And it was the, the, the typical speaker amplifier war that continued forever and probably continues to this day. So, so the, uh, when I got there in 76, I said, Oh, now I get to work with the engineering and the tour sound companies. And I found out, wow, they don't really, you know, they sell the parts and they're interested in that, but they don't really, uh, have a, you know, a relationship and they aren't really doing co-development, even of the, the next generation components, much less, what I ended up developing with the tour sound companies was uh, with us actually 
helping with their enclosure engineering, helping them design custom horns, uh, and uh, be able to really be a a partner. And, you know, that's, that's what built that portion of the business. Uh, you know, I was involved in, in the cinema business and the, the MI portable PA business and the, and the install business, all the different sectors of, of the business. But, you know, my, uh, particularly when I was still in engineering in the late seventies, my real love was the, the touring business that I had come from. I, I, I should say that and the musician business because I was the one who, who discovered the, those cabaret product requests, you know, lying fallow that that nobody had the interest or energy. Uh, the, it should be said that the, the culture at JBL was still totally hi-fi oriented, with a slight orient, a slight addition of the studio monitors because you could sell those studio monitors, kind of like hi-fi systems, to the export distributors who then. You know, sold tons of them uh, to the to, to the dealers, and particularly in Japan, sold uh, the studio monitors, the three ways and four ways to the to the hi-fi business there. And the stuff was just doing gangbusters, and there was huge export business, and there was trans shipping from U.S. dealers trying to sell it around the exclusive distributor in various countries, particularly Japan. So uh, that's how how the the uh, the, the business developed from the system business and JBL kind of could sell as much of the the components as they could make. And JBL was just beginning to expand its manufacturing. Uh, and uh, when I got there, one of the engineering things that I did was to say, Hey, look, you know, these things aren't passing power tests. They weren't doing regular power testing. And I did the power testing or got the QA guys to do it and saw the stuff was failing. And I said, no, hmm. we got to do batch testing. We got to do re regular testing. And that was a cultural fight inside because they were selling as much as they could do. And yep, a lot of it came back and some of it was honored in warranty, but I got them to, to see that they weren't doing what they thought they were doing, that they, they needed to do regular quality control on a batch test basis to prove you know, that the coils were being built right and then the complete speakers were being built and they and they passed the you know the one hour sine wave power test, which was what it was at the time in the very early days of that stuff. And then it evolved into pink noise testing and eventually we were on the committee and it became the AES two hour test and all that that type of thing. So that's what I did from 76 to to 79 as a transducer engineer. But I got frustrated and wanted to work with the customers. And a new guy came over from Altec, a guy named Ron Means, in the 79 and took over the pro division and wanted to have a much more proactive uh, interaction with all the different segments of the, the, uh, the pro audio side of things. And he wanted an application engineer. So I had, already, I had just developed uh, the the cabaret series and we just launched it in 79. So it was sort of a natural thing to migrate over and work as an application engineer in the, the revitalized pro division, helping sell and describe and present the cabaret series as well as, you know, start to work across with the tour sound guys, with the install contractor guys, uh, the, the studio monitor, uh, uh, dealers and all the different segments of the business. So let's 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 not let's not go too far past the cabaret series yet. I think I mean that's I mean that's a um, you know it's it, it's 
credited, I guess, as being the first full line of portable PA at, at, at the time for, you know, for musicians and stuff. So was that product already in works when you got there or were you at no, the beginning I to, of it? I had to pick it up. Um, JBL had done the original strong box, the thermoplastic four K one ten uh, line array in uh, 74, I guess sometime in the, the early mid seventies. So the, the line array, and we called it a line array. The line array existed uh, as a portable product, but it was very early days for thermoplastic molding, and they, the vendor could make the boxes. So, you know, they shipped very, very few of those 4680, 4682, or 81 uh, uh, line arrays. They called them the strong box. That was developed along with the 6233, which is a dual 300-watt uh, uh, power amplifier, which was a switching amplifier, very lightweight. Both very innovative products, both uh, not cutting edge but bleeding edge. Both technologies were not well-developed, were not ready. They couldn't make enough of the boxes, so you know they shipped literally a few dozen of them, and, and uh, that was it. And they, the amplifier blew up all the time because the switching technology for – Switching amps and switching power supplies wasn't mature, uh, so that that kind of fell by the wayside. But that liner existed, and they knew they were still selling boatloads of speakers to Fender and lots of other uh, guitar amp companies. So that, so these product requests existed to have a line of boxes that you'd sell the JBL speakers in, and you know you hoped that somebody would take a Fender or Marshall or somebody else's top and put it on top of the JBL <laughs> speaker box. So the original product request was just for a double 12 box, a um, uh, the line array, and they did have some concept for a, a uh, I actually don't remember if they had a concept for a studio monitor if I brought that into uh, the line. Uh, uh, to, so the first things that were launched, though, were the 4602 studio mo uh, floor monitor, the 12 and the bullet, the um, 4682, uh, I guess it was, the 80 and the 81 with a thermoplastic, if I'm, my brain is remembering correctly, uh, with or without a pair of bullets. And then the 82 was the, the wood box one that was part of the cabaret introduction in, in 79. And uh, so two 12s, a, uh, a floor monitor, and a, uh, a line array. The, and uh, that the was the very first introduction, but immediately that was at, at summer nam 79 and immediately at january nam 80 we added uh, a 15 inch box which was a, a k140 or a k130 uh, so you could have a, a lead guitar 15 or a steel guitar 15 box and a, a 140 for for bass uh and then i was the one who said well geez let's make pa boxes so let's put off a, a horn we had I had worked with Don Keel on the biradial horns, and we did the flat front versions of the biradials, and the one-inch version of that was the 2370, and that fit perfectly above the 15 in that single 15 box, and that was the, the 4691, which was, you know, probably the most uh, ubiquitous and popular of all the uh, the cabaret boxes, if it wasn't the the 4602. I'm I'm also not sure that the 4628 was a three-way box with a 15, a, a horn lens, uh, and a, 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 
and I don't remember if that came in the second wave or the third wave, but very rapidly people wanted the cabaret. Everybody was shocked at how expensive they were, but then they played them and listened to them and wow, these things really do sound good and are very efficient. And so they're, they're got to be, you know, the, the cabaret did take off and we very quickly added to the line and by, uh, you know, by 82, 83, you know, it was a, it was a, a huge line by 80, 85, 86. We had done a, an 18 inch box and put, put uh, mids and highs in the 18 inch box, which were giant boxes. And again, like the studio monitors, those quote unquote portable boxes got screw eyes put in them and got suspended by chain from the ceiling and, and installed in clubs. And I still get People were, were they, were, I was gonna say, were they were they they weren't rated for you guys by you guys to fly? Were any of the cabaret no, stuff? No, not it? at yeah. all. And you know that was always a big a big roll of the eyes. Worried that people are using dog chain to you know to ha- hang these heavy boxes from the ceiling and you know not doing it necessarily safely or correctly. But uh, you know you, you 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 try to help people and educate people, but you know people are going to do what they want. <laughs> How, so, being that this was the first, uh, the Cabaret series is one of the first um, uh, package portable PA systems. Right. Um, that being a different model from a, from a from a cabinet from a from a structure standpoint, um, what type of thought processes had to go in differently than what they were used to in terms of knowing that this is going to get drug out of bread vans and 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 thrown around in clubs and stuff like that, like. Um, uh, some of that had to be thought of in terms of durability did. And how about from like a truck pack standpoint, did that factor into the size of it all it was purely like, Hey, this is the right size for this cabinet for the application. Then it's, it's just it going to fit where it's going to fit. It was more of that. There certainly was the portability and the ruggedness were, were absolutely not in the original product request. That was stuff that I think I can take credit for bringing to it. Uh, uh, I had the, the industrial designer, Doug Warner, who helped, design the the look of the boxes uh uh we designed that thermoplastic uh polycarbonate corner which was a stacking corner which was a donut and the other one had a had a dot in the middle so you could actually stack and nest the boxes both for stacking under performance and for yeah. stacking in the in the bread truck you know for the band or the bread bread truck sound company um i worked with don nielsen at the sessions hardware company which was the the huge case hardware company at the time. And we uh, put a, put a stronger spring and a thicker bale on their, their uh, handle uh, pull out style handle that we put on there. The, uh, the, the thicker spring and the bale both dampened the, the rattle factors that, that was that their standard standard handled had. I mean, we went, I even went to the trouble to, to, to specify the, the little uh, fold over caps that switch, craft had for their phone plugs on the back because i didn't want the the phone jacks whistling you know the because the the phone jacks at the time were not solid they they went through to the terminals so Hmm. uh, you you'd have a a little bit of a leaky port from an acoustic point of view it probably wasn't that that much of a problem and with all the sound coming out of the box you probably wouldn't have heard the uh the whistle from the uh the one open uh uh jack if you had you know were only if you weren't daisy chaining and only plugging in one phone jack but there was these were designed as premier and premium uh cabinets and they and to some extent they were over designed I, I i would say that and 
admit that. But by the same token, you know, we used we used a 17 ply to the inch to the three quarter inch Baltic birch. We ended up later designing our own maple faced poplar that actually had better density and the 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 maple was actually better than the birch in terms of some impact resistance and whatever. And we did. De- we developed a, a two-part catalyzed polyurethane paint that went on the boxes that were, you know, they were very rugged. Um, we, uh, I, I found these 3M headlock fasteners and we made covers for the grills, though, again, the, the, the covers ended up being so expensive. A lot of people, most people didn't buy them. But oh, again, really? you, you could put the cover, the cover would snap on the grill and, you know, you had a you know, it'd get dinged up and have to get repainted, but so does everybody's box. And you had a, sure. a, a, um, a road case, you know, a, a very, uh, rugged, portable and packaged enclosure. And that, that signature designed look, you know, lasted for over 10 years, uh, as a, as a, as a product line, though by the end of the eighties, the whole explosion of, uh, high end PA and portable PA for, for musicians meant that people wanted more of a pro look and pro pro performance, not sort of MI performance, which is where the the uh, the cabaret came from. Uh, and all all through its life, cabaret used the the what was later the E series, uh, the ferrite versions of the the K series and and uh, F series D series uh, uh, Alnico speakers. Uh, so we ended up developing the the you know the the SR series and the lower priced MR series and those things really exploded in the late 80s and going into the 90s again because they ended up being more what was needed at the time and more professional lower distortion smoother response in some cases not using MI drivers that maybe had a little bit of distortion designed in because they were also guitar or bass guitar speakers how about so at that time um did jbl feel like it was a risk at all for the investment to go for that cabaret series beings that you know speaker manufacturers weren't really doing that yet or um i I mean the the economics of this stuff through the years is is interesting so i mean like i guess couple that together with like what was the life cycle of like hey we need we need this product to it's 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 ready for market and what was maybe cost prohibitive and, you know, things they had to do to, to get you there? Well, uh, the JBL, JBL was revitalized in 1980, 70, late 79, 80, when Ron Means came over from the University Division of Altec to run the professional division. The people that were running the professional division in the 70s were kind of, you know, they, they, they could take as many orders as they wanted to for studio monitors, and they could look the other way when they were being transshipped to Japan and, and other places around the, uh, the world. And they could sort of take as many orders as they wanted to for the, the K-series parts and compression drivers and stuff from the, the tour sound company. So they weren't, you know, they weren't as uh, market-focused and customer-focused, uh, I would say, and I'm trying to be charitable here that <laughs> as they should have been, uh, but they were making tons of money and the company was making tons of money. So everybody was happy. So, you know, whatever, but there was so much potential there. So Ron means came as the, uh, I guess they gave him a president title, but he was really the, just the head of the professional division. That was just a 
subdivision of domestic hi-fi, U.S. hi-fi, and everything internationally was sold through international distributors. So it was really a tiny little, you know, we were, there was a $7 million division at the time. It was tiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I came over and joined uh, as first as an application engineer, later as a product manager. Uh, Ken Lopez joined as a, as a salesman. Uh, you know, there's more to talk about, but by the time 80, 1984 rolled around, they saw, you know, we made millions of dollars of business. We had taken advantage and marshaled the, uh, the capabilities of JBL engineering and JBL manufacturing in the early 80s uh, when Hi-Fi was confused or weren't quite sure what they wanted to do. And, they, and so we had all these resources at our uh, available to us so we directed engineering and manufacturing and we built up uh next generation studio monitor we built up uh the biradial horns uh you know we built up the contracting business uh built up all that stuff and they made us finally our own division jbl professional ron means as president ken lopez vp of sales mark gander vp of marketing with my marketing Bent. I had studied some marketing uh, type classes at Syracuse and, you know, n- knew enough to, to do the basics of marketing. But my marketing approach was very much a product orient, oriented approach. Talk to customers, talk to engineering, communicate, determine what the next products should be or what problems are going on in the field that need to be addressed with existing products. So talk about that. Talk about let's talk about that transition. So um, you know, in, into that marketing, you said you wanted to um, you wanted to get more direct in with the companies that were just buying your transducers. Um, I took and- Ron Means on his on his first road trip up up the California coast, uh, going to visit the ultrasound, uh, which uh, you know, there's but this is before, or just just as John Meyer was starting in in seventy nine, it was before uh, ultrasound became a a uh, a uh, Meyer house, if you will. Uh, but I knew Don Pearson. I knew the, the ultrasound people. And we went and visited lots of other people, too. We visited the big music stores, Leo Pro Audio in San Francisco, and, uh, you know, up and down uh, the, the California coast to, to see. I said, well, you know, somebody's buying all this stuff. What's going on? This is where we <laughs> kind of saw the, you know, the, the soft white underbelly where, where some of the the studio monitors were being transshipped, and also the, the JBL components were being transshipped. U, U.S. dealers would buy big pallet loads of of K140s and K130s, and you know they would just sort of get sold. And a lot of times, those serial numbers would end up in England or in Germany <laughs> or in, in Japan uh, because there was so much demand for the product, and uh, the, the the controls and the the degree of management that that the uh, distributors were were uh, enforcing would uh, you know left left open the opportunities for uh, uh, gray market channels of distribution to use the uh, official parlance. But uh, again, the 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 product was in demand. The product performed. It was the one thing, not just that w- not just they, that they would do that would do business with the exploding music market uh, in the studios and in the the live sound uh, uh venues but that that they uh they would jbl had the products 
and would talk to the customers. And particularly us in the 80s, we were very customer oriented. You know, I uh, I was probably the first person other than just a regional manager that, that went to Claire Brothers in whenever it was, 81 or or something like that. And I said, well, we got to go talk to these guys. You know, and I went to the original Brickerville building with the with Ron Borthwick, chief engineer, and Roy Claire. And, you know, well, what are you guys doing? What's going on? And, you know, and they told me about, you know, their disgruntled, you know, reaction to not getting as good a support as they, they thought they should be for when things failed and it wasn't their fault. They, you know, all those guys, you know, when, if, if an amp blew up and some takes out the speaker, it's, you know, it's not the, you know, but, but there were stuff, there was cases where the coils were failing or, or adhesives were failing and it was a, a manufacturing defect. And, and JBL would, you know, would give tons of recone kits and all those tour sound companies were trained and authorized as recone people so they could do all their own repairs. But learning the, and building the bridge between the customers on, you know, we're, you and I will talk most about the tour sound customers, but over the course of the eighties, we did it for the cinema customers because Altec gotcha. Altec was neglecting the people that were using voice of the theaters uh, and things were failing and not, not performing well as, as the cinema industry was, was improving. And the next, next generation of studio monitors, Altec just wanted to keep selling 604 coaxes and 9849s and, and, and those basically a sevens in a, in a box and called a studio monitor. And, you know, we came out with the bi-radial studio monitors. Uh, Altec had, had the, uh, sold their driver to URI for the 813 studio monitor. Um, the install business, the bi-radial horns competed with the uh, electro voice white horns and, and uh, the Altec man arrays for the contractor's business. So every, every contracting bid, the consultants would write it for, you know, equivalents and all three, JBL, Altec, and EV, in many cases were acceptable as as alternatives. And then then the bid would, would go out and who would get the bid for that install. Not on, you know, the, uh, the uh, per- permanent install version of the bid going out for the tour and the Ricky Fard, uh, uh, Bob Goldstein, and uh, R- uh, Roy Clare or... Uh, uh, you know, bidding on the tour and trying to trying to get the tour and try to second guess who's uh, who's who's really going to get the tour and Ken Lopez getting the call from all three of those guys <clears throat> saying we, we got the tour I know it for sure you got to start buying <laughs> the, building those X or Y or Z drivers and luckily we because we had two or three variants for each size or type of components and people had different designs we you know we had different components to keep all the customers happy first of all because there weren't that many alternatives there was gauss and umlr and some of the other companies but you know we were the biggest game in town not the only game in town but we uh but we also provided you know bob goldstein would use a 2202 in as his 12 inch mid-range and and shoko would use a k120 12 inch in that same hole and that was what was in their box and uh you know, uh, Claire had the S4, so they were using a, a 10, a K110 in theirs. And later on in the 80s, we developed other alternate versions, a, a Pro 2121 version or 2122 version of that that uh, K110 that had smoother response and lower distortion, as well as 
letting one guy buy one and one guy buy the other. <laughs> of course, we were we were trying to figure out well who is really you know going to get this tour because they're all going to want the speakers in two weeks, you know. And nice. Obviously, we couldn't do it you know till four or eight weeks, but we had to try to guess. And luckily, a lot of these parts were had similar magnets or similar frames, and then we just had to be ready to wind the voice coils and and use the different cone paper or whatever to build whatever order came in for 200 mid ranges and, you know, 80 woofers and, and 80, uh, 18 inch subwoofers or whatever. <laughs> um, so there's, there's so much there. Um, <laughs> um, when you, when, so when you first started talking to these companies, um, and at this point, they were they just happy just, to have somebody that actually paid attention to them sure. more than just a salesman who, you know, who wanted to represent the company and and help them with their problems. And I, you know, in the, even in the, the late 70s, I worked with some of these regional managers and they would tell me about their problems. And that was part of where I started the power testing and said, hey, they're not really actually doing what we say they're doing. But there there was that interaction. So I don't want to paint so negatively the the pro people in during the uh, the 70s. But they, you know, it was an it was a time of incredible growth and incredible opportunity. And sure. we were able to seize that within the company and understand it in the marketplace and with the customers. Yeah, yeah. No, I, so I guess where I was going is um, at what point, I, I guess what I've, I've been trying to figure out in, in, in you, when you and I talked before as well, it's like, so so JBL has is working on making uh, uh, transducers, right? They're, they're making, you know, drivers and stuff. Um, I, I find it interesting that you're they're making those without, uh, without a physical box in mind. And yet, and then you have a sound company who is designing a box to fit a transducer, a transducer to fit their box. Um, so at what was there a point when JBL started making something specific because of the size of a box or a box because of the size of a, a transducer? Like, how did that relationship grow, and how was JBL working hand in hand with the companies through those processes? Very much inter- interactively, from whatever they were currently using, uh, uh, saying, "Well, okay, the, now we need a subwoofer, and we wanted to go in that same box size that the." mid high pack is so we've got x amount of cubic feet and you know what can we get and then we'd run simulations on the computer and show them well you can get down to this frequency at this efficiency level or you can get down to this frequency at this efficiency level but it also has to do with are you going to be stacking up just two or four of these boxes or is it always going to be a larger range you're going to get more mutual coupling and you're going to get all these different uh aspects of things. So it was very much setting up that channel of communication. And I became the, the, uh, the, that, that interface between particularly the tour sound customers. And I don't want to uh, misrepresent that there weren't also a lot of good people working, Ken himself and people working with Ken that learned about what, you know, what our capabilities were and, you know, the people in engineering were willing to take the input. Um, but, you know, one of my skills is being able to talk a good line and to ask questions, probing questions and leading questions. One of the, you know, you know, it, it's a, a Steve Jobs paradigm that, that people don't know what they want, you know, and and that's true, true very much in the audio business, too. 
they don't they don't necessarily see they see the problem before them right now but they don't necessarily see the extended opportunities of of and you need to know what's going on in engineering you know when there are when when titanium is titanium is foil is invented by the aerospace industry in southern california and we can buy some of that foil and run it through the same uh, forms that we make our aluminum diaphragms with and perfect the process of using, you know, pulling the foil a different way or forming the tools a different way and doing pressure, higher pressure to form the, the stronger titanium. And, you know, that what became in the in 1980, the the uh, the titanium uh, diaphragm for the compression driver, the 2445. Uh, series of uh, and 46 series of compression drivers that that replaced the uh, the Alnico 375, 2440, and 2441 compression drivers. So those understanding the customers in depth, understanding the engineering in depth, understanding where the customers are going and w- what the customers, the touring musicians. Are, and and their mixers are asking of them on that side and understanding what's going on in engineering and how can we harness new materials like titanium later on it would you know it would uh, actually in 7980 we had to uh, convert a lot of things from original Alnico magnets that Lansing had designed the parts with to ferrite magnets that's what the E series was and the 2445 because uh, there was a, a war in the belt in the in the Congo, uh, Zaire, at the time, and there, you couldn't get cobalt, and so all the <laughs> cobalt went to to uh, uh, military and and defense uh, aspects. So we the you know, the price went through the roof, and we couldn't make our speakers. So we had to we had to redesign the loudspeakers, and engineering had to figure out well. People said that you know it's the, the Alnico. That's the magic of JBL, and if it's not Alnico, it's going to sound awful. It's going to be those ferrite mud magnets, and that's why we don't use Electrovoice, or why we don't use other people that have all are all using the the ferrite magnets. Well, we found out all the stuff about the topology and distortion, and and the different mechanisms inside the the, the magnetic circuit of the original JBL speakers and what was going on inside the competitive ferrite speakers and did the, uh, the, the SFG, the symmetrical field geometry that created a symmetrical field physically with the overhanging uh, pole piece and top plate, as well as putting the shorting ring in that made that, that bucked the changing magnetic field. That was really the heart of the mud magnet sound that created this very heavy, second and higher order even harmonic distortion that that muddied up the sound and was the reason that the JBL sounded so clean and so many of the competitive speakers sounded so uh, not so clean and and, and distorted so that there, there's a there's an engineering driver but why we were doing those same things we said well what are we going to do let's let's invent invent a next generation of not just the musical instrument loudspeakers when the K-series went to the E-series, which was my stuff that I did, but I also worked on the the install or professional components. Uh, the 2205 became the 2225 as a, a ferrite magnet speaker and it, uh, getting better linearity and higher power handling for 
those applications where you don't want a K140 or E140, you don't want the coil wobbling around and giving you a big lump of second harmonic that uh, on transients now, in this case, it's on transients. And that's part of the magic of why an old D140 or K140 sounds so fat is you're actually, when you're hitting it with a transient, it's making a big lump of second harmonic distortion, not a constant a lot constant second harmonic like I was talking about. I'm getting it pretty deep here. And, and, no, nope, it's totally fine. Totally fine. Um, and uh, I talked about the ferrite magnets. Without a shorting ring, they generate this this sort of lower level three to ten percent second harmonic distortion, and it just makes things sound thick and distorted and not clean. So again, it's selective distortions. One of the big things I did through the year early 80s and mid 80s as an applications and a then as a product manager and, and marketing guy was to tell the JBL story of producers versus reproducers. If you're a sound producer, it's like a D130F. It's a part of the guitar amplifier. You want that cone breakup. You want that coil distortion. You want that D140 throwing the coil out of the gap and making that fat second harmonic when the bass player hits, hits a transient note. Uh, but if you're going to put a speaker in a uh, an installation or you're trying to make a reproducer as opposed to a producer, uh, that's the 2200 series components. Those you want a flat curve, not a rising curve. You want the lowest distortion possible. You want to eliminate those coil uh, distortions. And certainly you want to eliminate the anything that the magnet assembly is doing because you want that to be linear. Whereas the producers, you want certain non-linearities to be in there because right. that's what makes a magic guitar speaker sound or, you know, a musical instrument sound. So was there, um, in terms of like a sound company, you know, call it Claire, Shoko, MSI, or whatever, you know, they all had their life cycles of their physical cabinets before they went on to whatever the next one was where like the you know the claw msi was the claws and then the high packs low packs and you know out of the s4s into well, claire was the s4 and they had many generations of the s4 and uh claire and many other companies uh uh the, the electrotech and uh, db sound we one of the things uh, again one of the bridges i built was across into don keel at engineering we had our computer design program taking his design algorithms that he'd done for the biradial horn and we could just specify, well, we want this throat size. Is it a one inch or is it a two inch? We mm. want this kind of mouth size. And can it have lips or should it be a flat front? And what coverage angle do you want? And how are you going to array those boxes? How are you, you know, what, what do you want for the, the performance of the horn? And we were able to, to uh, design those horns on paper and, and interact back and forth between engineering at, at JBL and engineering at the tour sound companies. And this was many, many of the companies. Like I say, it's, uh, uh, we didn't particularly do it with, with Bob and I don't know why I don't really remember the, the history of that, but, but many sound companies, certainly Claire, Shoko, Electrotech, and a lot of other ones, we designed custom horns and actually licensed those designs for them to build and make their sound systems. And we did, you know, a lot of unique sound systems too. There was a, a sound system where uh, Roy took the W bins and he was flying in the round above yes. And uh, we made an arc of six inch wide by two foot high by radial horns and an arc of eight of them. And that would sit on top of 
the Roy boxes left and right with double twelves in them, and the folded old RCA W horn design for the bass, and that you'd have four of those across the the corners of the the array, and that was that went out with one of the first Petty tours, and I guess it probably went out with a Yes tour too. I'm just remembering that one because that sure. was that was something that was very unique, as opposed to most of what we did was taught to help them design the next generations of their all-in-one or two-box touring package systems. Yeah, and I guess, so one of the things I was trying to process through would be um, where did life cycles end in terms of, you know, so whatever original driver was in the S4 and then where Claire was going, was it because you guys had made a new transducer, so they're trying to make a box to work with that, or are they just ultimately trying to make another box? And so, like, was there ever a point where a sound company had, um, now that they've moved on to a new design, they, they need a new transducer, so you had to stop producing a line, or you guys wanted to stop producing a line because you've now made a better driver. Like, Does that make well, sense? Remember, yeah, I understand the question. Um, remember that we were selling to so many different people. So uh, no one would change over at once. We would end up with one partner. For instance, the, the 2123 10-inch, uh, was kind of first partnered with uh, audio analysts, actually, not even with with Claire Brothers, uh, as we interacted on. Okay, well, I don't want to keep using these K110s with the aluminum dome. You know, can you lower the distortion? Can you make it more, handle more power? Can you make it more efficient? And then, as I recall, that one ended up actually being with with uh, audio analysts first. Though, of course, once once that driver existed. We they did not audio analysts didn't have an exclusive on that, but and and there was also part of that that cross licensing deal between Claire and audio analysts on the S4. Um, uh, 18 inch woofers, uh, a, a lot of that was was uh, uh, interacting with uh, 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 obviously Borthwick at Claire. Actually, the January issue of uh, Live Center International, either online or in print. Uh, uh, Keith just reprinted a David Sherman article from 1989 about a Who tour. And in there, there's a bunch of quotes from Ron about developing the new subwoofer box. And, you know, they tested a bunch of different drivers and JBL won the shootout. Well, that was uh, Ron Borthwick interacting with me and the transducer, main transducer designer that has most of the transducer, at least cone transducer patents that at JBL through many years, Doug Button, uh, and we developed the the next generation woofer interacting that way. Now, the, again, there, there, when you say about box volumes and things, you know, it uh, people think there's a lot more to the Thiel small parameters and the box volume stuff than there really is. There's really, it, particularly for P, PA applications, there's quite a large latitude and. You know, there's not, it's not like a driver won't work. You know, you might lose a right. couple of hertz here or there or might have to retune the box to a different, you know, with a shorter or longer port or something. But in general, it's not that constraining. But, you know, there are, there are cases where we, you know, we would end up custom developing something always with in mind, are we doing something that only this person will buy? And again, if you know what everybody's using and you know how it's applied in the different applications, 
if it's going to be horn loaded, it needs to be a different animal than it's if it's going to be sure. direct radiator, for instance. But sure. in a lot of cases, you can satisfy and maximize the individual uh, customer that you're using as the development platform for a transducer while knowing that it'll be broadly accepted by most other people that are in the market for that size transducer or that power handling transducer or whatever. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what, what was it like to be in the middle of, I mean, I imagine obviously NDAs out the wazoo in terms of, <laughs> of what each company is trying to do and, um, what was it like to kind of observe maybe somebody have this breakthrough? It's like, Oh, well I've already, you know, who Claire, whoever, you know, name some company. They, Oh, they've already, they've already been doing this for six, eight months a year. And you guys don't even know about it. Like that had to be a very interesting perspective being such the middle of the industry and watch all this innovations and things ebb and flow. I mean, what was absolutely. Absolutely. And it actually, there wasn't actually that much legal stuff at the time. It was still kind of following on from the 70s. It was still somewhat the Wild West. By the by the late 80s, it, you know, there was lawyers, guns, and money, and much more of that, uh, at, you know, as we got into the, um, as the, the marketplace got into the, the turbo sounds and the EAWs and, and people that actually took the lead, you know, further beyond JBL, because uh, we were uh, we were still so tied into supplying the companies, whereas EAW and, and TurboSound come to mind, and there were others g- getting started in providing complete package systems. And uh, so we uh, uh, we were actually uh, so- somewhat behind at that. But your question about NDA, we actually didn't have we, we made them sign NDAs. Uh, uh, or or limited licenses when we gave them a biradial horn, for instance. But we just, you know, were ethical and and kept the confidences. And again, we were sort of, you know, not the only game in town, but you know, we we were the ones that seemed to do the best job. And because we could do it in a variety of ways and had cultivated these relationships. Uh, we ended up keeping, you know, the vast majority of the business again until uh, the late 80s when other other people uh, built complete package sound systems. And, you know, we had to catch up with that while simultaneously trying to keep up the component business uh, as that shrank. But, it you know, it didn't go away till the 2000s. You know, it was yeah. still and, you know, and Claire is still, you know, uh, building their own proprietary systems but most everybody else now is you know has 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 a manufacturer relationship and the manufacturers have have matured so much and there's so much great stuff and great engineering that the you know other than claire most manufacturers have to keep their engineering for doing the system interface work and the and the the other work to 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 keep keep the systems going as opposed to having real r&d development uh, areas yeah, I, I believe it was Ken Lopez that told me, but um, so early on, um, when John Meyer started building his boxes, JBL was there was actually JBL transducers oh, yeah. in there yeah, initially. They would, they would buy the 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 JBL uh, twenty four forty or forty one. The twenty four forty was the original Alnico four inch coil, two inch exit, big compression driver that came from the three seven five uh, consumer version. 
at the end of the 70s, uh, uh, not only was the, the new uh, diaphragm put in it, the, the uh, uh, diamond sur surround diaphragm that extended the response out from 9K to 20K, uh, but uh, the, the, uh, the uh, let's see, the, the, that compression driver, uh, I lost my train of thought. What was the, uh, that we were talking about? Uh, well, the John Meyer boxes and JBL. Yeah, Meyer, I'm sorry. That's, that's where I was going was that, that John would buy 2441s from us uh, and make his OEM modifications to them. He would uh, cut out the surround or put goo on the surround or some combination of that to get hit. Cause he wanted a very, very floppy compliance to work with his, his uh, electronic uh, feedback and and control mechanism things and and uh, you know he 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 had been buying uh, cone transducers from from someone else not JBL a European manufacturer and he bought our compression drivers for many years I think ten or twelve years you know hmm. uh, uh, his, his, his I believe some, some the UPA and some of the smaller boxes had uh, had a, 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 another uh, international uh, compression driver manufacturer but he he bought from jbl and we we catered to him we tried to say you know and after a while we would sell him drivers without diaphragms because he wanted to you know build his own diaphragm so that's you know sort of the path he went on and eventually he started building his own i don't even know if it was compression drivers first or or cones first and of course now he builds all his own components sure and has for 10 15 years yeah, were there any other manufacturers that JBL supplied to before they started making their own transducers, uh, from a speaker standpoint? Um, well, J JBL had had a huge long history of OEMing things, like like the Fender stuff. But even the even the horns and the the compression drivers would be sold to you know to the the, the, the school install market, a company called Duquesne that was like a a junior Altec and. So, you know, even it, uh, even all through the 60s, JBL would sell OEM versions of things. There's some fascinating uh, JBL uh, uh, special project stuff because uh, before JBL got sold to Sidney Harmon in, in 69, uh, the president, Bill Thomas, who was Lansing's original partners in the 40s, and the chief engineer, Bart Locanthi, who was the guy that invented the acoustic lenses and then invented the the le transducers the short coil deep cap transducers and brilliant engineer former president of the aes whatever but bart would uh would do these things with his friends in the aerospace industry there's there's pictures of these rooms with with uh uh you know literally a hundred 15 inch comb transducers and a hundred of the the square mouth horn that went behind the serpentine lens all each with their own big four inch uh, uh, 375 compression driver on it. And that was for rocket testing of the Saturn rocket to, you know, vibration testing of the elements that were going to go on. Space yeah, direct, direct, direct field acoustic testing. Is, yeah, uh, actually uh, Goldstein used his HLA systems and his vertex systems 
I guess not HLA. He didn't have HLA. Not, no, it was HLA. So I mean, I I did when when I was at MSI. I mean, I did a bunch of the. Um, you know, it's funny when I when I started there that that term DFAT, uh, direct field acoustic testing. I, I hadn't heard that name, and then a few years later, we we brought in you know um, someone else to kind of in that field. But yeah, I mean, I've I've I've, I've stacked uh, and flown hundreds of vertex around a satellite <laughs> um and uh and and use it for that purpose so a great a great different variation on the rental business yeah that's for sure um so you, you know gbl was behind so, yeah, I, don't, I don't know what other names i'd have to think about what others in the in the 80s we weren't oeming as much then uh 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 that but but Meyer certainly is is that that one example yeah yeah um, so you, so you mentioned you know GBL in some ways was behind the curve in terms of all the one boxes um, uh, at least from a it came up, we partnered with Stan Miller at uh, Stanel Sound uh, I think it was eighty six and did the concert series stuff he had done the Stanley Screamers stuff uh, late seventies early eighties with Altec and that had collapsed with Altec's collapse. So he had he had a custom build shop and a fiberglass shop at that there, and we said, well, yeah, let's um, and we actually bought his operation, used them to start our custom shop business, which was very instrumental in our our growth in the install market, and particularly the stadium and and right. big big install permanent install PA stuff. But we uh, Stan also had a, a business selling rigging parts from uh, uh, to to put on the boxes uh, and they weren't super elegant but it was early days for rigging as well too and so uh, the, and the concert series you know had quite a bit of play uh, you know a lot of uh, use of those different boxes a lot of different boxes it was a very full and broad product line obviously Stan used it himself at Stanel Sound for Neil Diamond and and all his tours uh but uh, uh so how, how much of that concert series was developed by stan all's engineering team versus jbl or how, or was it completely cohesive or a, a very 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 interactive um we used a uh, mark engerbretson who later went on to be a full-time employee at jbl and later qsc uh earlier had been at altec but had his own independent engineering consultancy and we used him uh, to to measure and quantify and to also design some of the stuff, but a lot of the some of the stuff was stuff was <clears throat> you know just sort of evolution from what what Stan had for his own use, or even some of the Stanley Screamer stuff. Other stuff uh, was opportunistic because we had the biradial butt shaped horns, and well, we got, you know they they work good and they make a broad coverage angle, so let's put that in a floor monitor and put that in a side fill or a, a flown box or whatever. So again, it's it's all about the communication. It's about seeing what's needed. Obviously, benchmarking competition. You know, this is this is with my marketing hat on. Is is what do you do? And you know, I'm I'm not a super schooled marketer, but I'm a very practical marketer and. And I'm very, I was very, very aware of the marketplace, of the competition, of what the customers were saying, but also what the customers were doing and try to anticipate from what their uses were or potential uses were, what we could provide with our engineering and manufacturing capabilities. How about from a, from an economics standpoint, um, 
you know, there's this, uh, this, this ongoing conversation I have with people in terms of advancement of technology and the whole, you know, um, cart, horse, egg, chicken, uh, like what came first. And, and so as the music industry, uh, is exploding i'm you know i'm assuming that's obviously what you know drove the demand for the amount of tours that were out there um what was there was there ever points where economically um you guys had to hold back from an engineering standpoint or stifled or couldn't keep up demand like what was what was that side of uh, of, of things from 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 jbl's perspective at least well um there's a couple angles you can get to on that uh one is economically uh, uh, resource constrained. We were able to do a lot of things we did in the 1980s because um, the consumer division went through some turmoil and changes of leadership and changes of salesmen, and they weren't quite sure what they wanted to do. So they weren't using the engineering resources or the manufacturing resources. So we were able to sweep in and say, hey, we got this potential to do this. And we would go and do a product and it would sell really well. And, and you know, so we, we ended up getting the attention and drawing the attention. But conversely, you know, one year we, we would joke about, is it our year or not? Because one year it would be the new sales executive or the new, new head of the consumer division. And, and he needed, you know, to make his mark. So he said, we're going to, do this product line or whatever. So all of a sudden we, we lost a lot of the development resources uh, for six months or something, uh, you know, so, so it's an in internal constraint in, in terms of, of economics uh, in, in a lot of cases of whether, and, and, and how, how fast you can grow, how fast you can add people, you know, you know, for a lot of the time, you know, in the early 80s, I had to do all the product management myself. And then I finally had a marketing manager to address certain vertical markets and write the product requests. And then we had a second one of those people. And, you know, as as we grew the business, you could add that. But you had to find the people, develop the people. And the, the timing had to be right that we could harness engineering and and take advantage of the opportunities that we that we saw in uh in the marketplace. <clears throat> well, I'm sorry, you, your economic question though sounded like it had a, a different, uh, no, uh, it's, I'm, to it. I, I'm, I, I don't know. And I'm, it's, it's somewhat of a, of a thinking out loud of just trying to put my head in that space that I obviously I, I wasn't there for that time or in, in your guys' shoes in terms of, um, um, uh, I mean, we were we were selling boatloads of stuff to the to, the tour guys. You know, the tour business was growing by leaps and bounds. I mean, you know, we'd we'd get a million dollar order from Clark Brothers. I mean, it, right. literally, you know, uh, right. you know, in 1985 or 1990, it was, in, you know, the, the the growth of the industry was incredible, uh, and and uh, so the demand was there. That's what you know. That's what what spurred these other manufacturers to say, "Well, geez, JBL doesn't really have any systems. Let's let's you know." And give credit to things like the TMS three, Tony Andrews, um, and John Meyer, and you know the MSL three. Um, those package concepts, whether or not they were electronic or not, or you know how much. Right. Uh, 
I still wish I could find, I have all the old ProSound Newses and someplace I, 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 I have this memory of, of uh, John Meyer being quoted in ProSound News in the early days of the MSL3 saying, you only need 12 MSL3s, six aside, and you can cover all of Madison Square Garden. (laughs) 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 You know, and in a way, you know, it sort of of made sense because if you go full on into the the compression and the, the, you know, limiting, you can, you know, you could probably get intelligibility across all of Madison Square Garden with a small array as long as they're, you know, the, the horn coverage was there, but it's not, you know, it's, you know, you know, what's the last time that, that Derek Featherstone had the, uh, the ultrasound PA in the Madison square garden? Well, you know, it's probably, (laughs) you know, 80, uh, 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 Milo's or, uh, 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 anyway, it's right. Obviously we, we have, we have not limited the amount of, of speakers that are needed. It has just allowed us to get more sound, cleaner, and more flexibly. Sure. Yeah, I guess so. another area where, like, the thoughts on economics would be, you know, at the end of the day, um, you have to make decisions to get a product out the door, right? So, like, engineering has to stop at a certain point. You have to oh, yeah. come to a happy medium, yeah. you know. Um, and it's well, kind of goes- and For instance, power handling, you know, what do we have to get it to before we can release it? What would we like to get it to? How much would be enough? That's one of the biggest economic things, I think, is the latter effect of amplifier manufacturers and speaker manufacturers, mm. starting with the 60s. You know, uh, uh, Crown uh, and Gerald Stanley come out with the, the original DC 300, 150 watts a channel. <laughs> and that was huge. You know, what did yeah. you have? You had, you had Mac 275s, uh, 75 watts a channel, or you you had a a, a Mac uh, thirty five hundred, which was three hundred watts a channel, and and you know you so and and DC three hundreds would blow up original F series or D one thirty F D one forty F speakers, and so JBL, you know, more for the guitar amps in that particular instance than for right. early PA use, but they would uh, uh, you know. J- JBL came out with the K series in 72 or 73, whatever the date is. And that handled, you know, instead of 60 watts, it handled 100 watts. Or instead of 100 watts, it handled 150 watts. And that same laddering went on through the phase linear 400 and 700 of the, of the early mid-70s and through the crest amplifiers and what are, what are some of the other early, you know, giant mega amps. And that the tour companies would develop relationships the amps would blow up, but then they wouldn't blow up, and then then the uh, amps would blow up the JBL speakers, and we they'd come to us and show us the coils and say, "What can you do about this?" And you know we'd have to go back and try different adhesives and try different voice coil former materials and and you know try to to and we we did we would ratchet it up and the button came up in the late '80s with the vented gap cooling where the the pumping uh, of the air around the voice coil of of the cone would circulate air around the voice coil and the gaps would vent out the back of the magnet assembly. And that uh, uh, other people did some similar things too, but that was a a major advance uh, to handle more power and, and just constant let the titanium, you know, the the original uh, compression drivers were aluminum diaphragms and people had to use the phenolic diaphragms so they wouldn't break, but those phenolics didn't sound as good and, didn't go out as high in, in frequency response and had higher distortion. So we were able to use titanium and it, 
it handled a, a lot more power and didn't shatter. You know, it could it could kiss the face plug and uh, <laughs> under high excursion and not break. Uh, so so the 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 economics, if you will, of the power handling rise. Uh, amps get bigger, blow up speakers. Speakers handle more power. Amps, <laughs> you know, uh, run out of gas. So the amp manufacturers generate a, a, a higher power handling amplifier, and back and forth it goes. Yeah, so I, I guess through that through that time, um, and I don't know what time you know Harmon brought on Crown as being um, kind About of a partner. Two thousand or so it was ninety nine. Okay, so that's all right. So we're talking twenty some years or more of of when. So when when the engineering department is designing this uh, this um, transducer. Did they have specific manufacturers in mind, or was it pure wattage, you know, and pure crossover spec that they wanted to do? Uh, yes, like how 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 did how did that expectation go of like when you guys sold X speaker? Was it pure just hey, here's the max wattage you can handle, no matter what amplifier you're using it with, no matter which crossover you guys are using it with, that, that type of stuff? I mean, well, I mean, we we would have giant racks of crowns and and crests in the power handling room. Both the, there's an engineering power handling room for for development testing, and then there's a a giant one with racks and racks and racks amplifiers that they use in production, and they can you know they can literally power test thirty or forty right. speakers at once because we do batch testing. We'll do a batch of you know they'll do a, a run of a couple hundred speakers, and they'll pull six speakers out of that batch and and power test them for the two hours AES, and then extend it for the hundred hour life test. Uh, so, so typically at, at JBL, it would be, uh, that we, we would, we would play, you know, disco music, you know, stuff with a lot of full bandwidth or a lot of thump. And we would do some of that kind of music testing, but we would, you know, more rely on the, the continuous pink noise testing, sure. uh, to, uh, to, uh, as, as something that was very repeatable. And uh, particularly with the tour account sound companies, send them the samples and say, here, try to blow them up and see what happens. <laughs> they fail? No, literally, literally. And, you know, they would tell us, hey, the cone tour or the surround tour or no, we were able to run out of gas with the amp or no, the, the amp fried the voice coil. So, again, very, it's all about the communication back and forth. And both sides need to do a little bit of the other size. Like I say, we would do, as I recall, I shouldn't, uh, we, we also did some things with, with pulse testing, either a CD on repeat with a very heavy disco beat or giant kick drum beat, or, uh, or even we, you know, we, there, there's a, one of the JBL tests is actually a, a triggered uh, uh, sine wave. That's, you know, two cycles on or something at 60 Hertz, like a 60 Hertz kick, kick drum to just pound away and, you know, that one wasn't so much for thermal testing as it was to see, you know, how long we could go before we stretched out the spider and the surround on, on the, the physical components. Yeah, I've, so I've, been, I've been in that room. I've been in that room out there a couple of times. So I've been to Recon School and I've been, you know, uh, you know, Vertec training through the years and stuff like that. So I've, I've seen a lot of some of that testing out of the out of the factory. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, how about. uh you know, are there any, um, and I don't want to throw a shade on one particular box, but are there any, um, 
any flops or failures majorly that that you get that that or bleeding was everything edge. bleeding edge? We did a lot of stuff that was cutting edge, and it was really be- bleeding edge. We brought it out before its time, either because the technology wasn't uh, wasn't ready yet, or because the marketplace wasn't ready for the technology. Now you can say then the technology wasn't correct or mature enough to two big digital examples come to mind. The ES 52,000 digital controller that we uh, brought out in the uh, early mid nineties for the array series originally. Um, That was one of the first digital controllers. And we had to learn hard lessons about, about latency, you know, that, that you can't, have, you know, on, on an audible system that's going to do live work, you can't have anything more than at the most two milliseconds and shouldn't really be more than a half a milliseconds. And our first iteration of that, I think, had four or five milliseconds of latency. And we used it and people said, yeah, it sounds funny. What's going on? Well, you were you were pushing back the PA, you know, seven feet from the from uh, the, the back line and the and, and the musicians. And it was. Uh, and and that we also had failures with that. Um, there, the uh, the uh, uh, cables that we used had did not have oxygen-free contacts, and we would get these these uh, gunshot snaps that would come out of the the electronics, and the, you know those caused disasters in South America. <laughs> it was actually a riot when the president was speaking on oh, wow. on an array series system, and some some inopportune snaps came through it. Uh, um, but you know, there, there was an attempt to really, I, I mentioned way back in the early seventies, the 6233 switching amplifier and the, the, uh, the, the 4880 and 81 line arrays in the thermoplastic box where the molding technology was not, uh, not there yet. Um, the, the, uh, in the 20, 2000, 2005, I guess was the, um, the Evo system. We had a, a complete package system that that would do its own self tuning. It came with a microphone, and it would it would tune itself to the room, e- equalize itself to the room. Right. I should be careful of my language here. You can't. Tune the room. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, and that one uh, that one was technically difficult and had some failures, um, but it also was not uh, accepted by the marketplace because. The contractor said, well, I don't want to put this in. Where's my value added, you know? <laughs> uh, and, it, it, of course, it did need a, a, a lot of hand-holding, but they, sure. they saw that as something that, you know, well, JBL, they've got all those music stores. They're just going to turn them all into contractors and sell this to them. So there was market resistance to mm. that for that re- for that reason. So there's one with, that had a both, both, a, both technical difficulties and uh, – market acceptance uh for practicality of the distribution channel if you will so uh, how about how about how about hla because you know um hla uh, we we didn't have a tour sound system we had didn't have anything since since the uh, ca- the uh, concert series and we wanted to get in that business in a big way and be a player you know we saw the eaws and the turbo sounds and the, all the others that were being very successful selling directly and we you know, we were still supporting the sound images and the Claire's and the Shoko's at the time before they got absorbed by Claire that were designing their own systems. But we knew we had to do our own tour sound system. 
And we wanted to do it uniquely. And there were some cool ideas in that. But overall, it was not a success. You know, it didn't didn't have much longevity. It had some problems that had too much rear radiation. Um, You know, it, it... but, you know, a lot of people used it. Springsteen toured with it. You know, uh, a lot of a lot of big uh, uh, rental companies in Europe adopted it and uh, and used it successfully. But it's you know, it, it, it wasn't it had some flaws and it it didn't it didn't survive to uh, next generation, if you will, or to, to sure. evolve. And again, remember, that came out in the late 90s. And and uh, VDOSC was on the rise, right? So we we superseded HLA with what you know I think is you know, maybe fair to say, and we called a second generation line array because uh, we didn't use just the front of the mid range cones to form the angle to create a high frequency horn. We created the what we call the radiation boundary inter- integrator. We created the surface that act as a phasing plug in front of the mid-range cones but uh, and allowed them to radiate, but still formed the sidewalls of the high-frequency horn for the slot high-frequency radiator. Right. And yeah, that and was, you know, there were a lot of other innovations in that. We used the uh, uh, ACEs, you know, the Dave Shadone Sound Images division to make the carbon fiber box. And we had, we used a, we had a, 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 tit- uh, a, a, um, a, um, a beryllium diaphragm compression driver, you know, that was the first to use the, well, I guess the HLA was the first to use the differential drive components, the dual coil, dual magnetic gap, neodymium Hmm. components to get the lightweight, but that, that, that benefited from it too. And that was developed in 1999 and first on the market in, in 2000, the R, R version of uh, a full size line ring. Yeah, so just for the record of just about anybody listening probably knows it'll be a, we're talking about the Vertec, obviously. Um, <laughs> I, I know you and I know this, but I just want to make sure in case Vertec, anyone listening. Vertec 4889 was the first uh, uh, JBL Vertec, uh, first first line array in that horizontal con- configuration with some kind of uh, phasing device to integrate the mid and high frequencies and uh, to to allow the compression drivers to radiate down the vertical center. So when, uh, was that a reaction to when VDOSC came out or were you guys already in that mindset um, or headed in that direction or was that a reaction to the, the, well, there was, there were some debates internally uh, about, you know, is this thing, you know, is, is this thing right or not? Cause you know, VDOSC, even though it's taken over the whole, you know, the, the, the dominance in the, the tour sound business, it still has some limitations. And certainly for permanent installations, there's, there's often cases where, where a, a point and shoot or, or a custom designed arrays can do a much better coverage job than just trying to, to, to plunk line arrays down and hope, hope that you sure. can aim them effectively. Um, and there was, there was some, uh, Reluctance. I I have to admit that I was sort of on the side trying to juggle our our still doing our component business. You know, which, which direction should we go with a new package system because we we need that versus the the rise of uh, of the the VDOSC format line array. But you know, by 
by 98 or so, it was maybe even 97, it was clear that this thing, you know, had all sorts of practical advantages, had acoustical advantages, had packaging advantages, uh, you know, as well as, you know, at the time, Christian was only, only uh, you couldn't even buy the Vidosk. You had to had to lease it or, or rent it or license it or something. And, you know, so he had a Panavision model. Panavision is the camera business in, 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 in Hollywood where, you know, that you couldn't buy a Panavision camera. You could only rent it from them. So that, that model came to, came to Pro Audio, I think, with, with Christian Heil, though maybe there was somebody else before that that, that tried to do that. But uh, th- there was a debate. But when, you know, when Roy Claire says to me, you know, look, this is, this is taking over our business. We're going to design that. You know, we'll be t- talking to you about components. Borthwick will talk to you, and you know, we're gonna gonna have to respond to this. You know, you're not coming out with a competitor with it. We said we got to come out with a competitor, and we we worked on stuff in the custom shop, but but because it was taking coming over so rapidly, we ended up saying no. Let's make this a real product and our next our next tour sound system product, and we actually did it. And it came out in uh, the summer of 1999 with a prototype system that AK, ATK used for the the Democratic National Convention at the Stable Center in LA, and that was the first uh, uh, first line array, Vertec line arrays. And then by the the beginning of 2000, we were in in production with the the Vertec 4889. Did you guys have to bring on um, different engineering that hadn't been there in the past in terms of personnel to come up with the line array uh, or your guys' version of the line array at the time because that was such a new thing? Or did you guys figure that out internally? Or um, and with who you some had? Of both. Some of both. We were lucky to get Mark Engelbretson to come to JBL as the chief engineer during that same period. Um, we had uh, a guy named Andrew Rutkin working with the old Stanel Sound shop, which we called the Custom Shop. He was there. He was uh, in, in the early days of that, but it was really uh, Mark Engelbretson uh, that took the lead on the, the Vertec 4889. Uh, uh, he and a guy named Scott Opie, who I think still runs the JBL Custom Shop today, uh, uh, does, uh, got some of the patents on the RBI device doug button was there doing the transducers he did the not just the cone transducers uh with using the differential drive dual coil dual cap gap and neodymium magnets for lightweight and high power handling but he also did the diaphragm for a very small compression driver uh did the the beryllium diaphragm so and it had to be a small compression driver so we could cram a lot of them together because we actually used three compression drivers not one or two on our central slot of the the 4089 so we had internal resources that could be brought to bear we had recently added talented people who had a, a, a lot of experience in uh tour sound uh system engineering manufacturing side not not actual side and but again we culturally you know over the years we had we had hired Mick Whelan from from Electrotech, and he had worked at JBL for a, for quite a period. Um, not working on that project, he was I think before that or maybe after that. And Ted Leamy, uh, who's uh, now uh, part of the uh, running the Pro Media contracting operation and ran the Ultrasound touring operation. Ted Leamy uh, 
uh, ran the custom shop for for a long time. He ran. He was at Electrotech as the chief engineer. Uh, I'm probably forgetting some name dropping. I should be doing of people <laughs> from the tour sound industry uh, that uh, uh, you know contributed brought into. I mean, Raul Gonzalez is still there. He, he didn't come till early 2000s, I don't think. But uh, uh, and again, he's on the application side. You were asking more specifically of people that worked internally in engineering. But again, the applications people become that bridge that I was talking about. That I tried to be in the early 80s. And if you've got applications people that are customer oriented and that have an engineering knowledge and background, you can uh, uh, you you can get more of more of the sales bridge, sales and marketing bridge between the customers and the development engineering group. How about from a, you know, that was a whole new world of, of rigging and packaging from, from, from the dolly boards to do, to do, yep. you know, shipping it around the rigging, uh, which I think to me, you know, so sonic quality aside, I mean, one of the biggest differences that, you know, Vertec brought to the game was how fast and easy it was to rig, yep. you know, and that, that credit goes to Mark Edgarbretson as well. Um, I believe his name is on the, the patents we have. Uh, JBL has, I shouldn't say we, I'm no longer, <laughs> no longer a JBL, but you're doing me history here. So some of the, some of this stuff is my 41 years at, uh, Own it. Yeah, it's yours. JBL <laughs> Armin. Um, but, uh, uh, so, uh, where should I go with that? Uh, no, that's okay. I was just curious. I mean, like, uh, you know, um, I, I guess I'm, I'm interested in like, I guess I'm curious to see. Like, uh, there, so there, there were something like a dozen patents applied for, and almost all of them got issued that were associated with Vertec. The the rigging, the RBI, and variations on right. the RBI, the differential drive transducers and their design. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the the out of the box thinking in terms of right so like you know for those who don't know like the vdox it's like you know it's these fixed angles of a of a of, of a, a piece of metal with some chain links right and you have to have all this extra hard loose hardware you have to have extra cases of hardware um is, is rudimentary now i'm i'm not da- i'm not trying to downplay what they, what were they the designed first. They had to do I'm, it I'm, first. I'm, right right so i mean of course there's always gonna be innovation um but I mean, like the you know the, the the captive rigging and 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 how slick it was. I mean, that's it. Just it baffles me, like to have that forward thinking of to be able to figure figure that that stuff out. Yep, yep. Um, I, Mark Engerbretson, I believe his name is on the patent. Uh, there, there, you know, where there were a lot of other engineers and mechanical designers. Uh, I mentioned Andrew Rutkin in the custom shop. Yoki, Yoshiyuki Takeuchi. I think his name may be on one of the patents, uh, um, uh, the rigging patent uh, for the design of that, uh, the utility patent on that. Um, So, again, one of the neat things about a large organization uh, and or a focused organization, because L Acoustics and Meyer and D&B, you know, are not as huge as Harmon is, but they're very, very focused on the, the pro audio business. Uh, uh, Harman owning JBL and as you mentioned Crown and all the other brands has sure. all that to draw from as well as automotive and, and consumer uh, you know and you might think those don't have anything to do, to do with pro but the the manufacturing economies of scale but also you know some of the technology stuff that goes on with 
with assessing what goes on in a living room, what goes on in a car cabin. Um, the, a large organization has a, a great uh, advantage to be able to draw on that. Now, there has to be the will to draw on that, and there has to be the, the dedication and seeing the opportunity and the reality of the uh, opportunity to make money to, to keep the organization going and, and, and tow your share of the, uh, the, the load. But uh, sure. there's, there's um, lots of cases where, you know, right now we're seeing it, you know, with, because of COVID and because of the, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the limitations in, you know, there's no new tourist systems being sold. There are right. luckily some churches being going in and some performing arts centers and some, some uh, installations going in. So a lot of the crossover of touring uh, and, and all, an all pro audio gear into uh, permanent installations is luckily staying alive right now, but companies that are, you know, that have been mostly focusing on uh, or, or a, a, a large you know, chunk of their business is focusing on selling to rental uh, markets are, you know, some of them are, are collapsing or, you know, falling by the wayside in, in this current environment. So the economy of scale, that, that was an, another thing that went on at, at JBL is, is I talked about how, uh, you know, one year might be hi-fi's year and we couldn't get, uh, you know, much of the pro products developed or out the door. Uh, but, uh, that might, that might've been the year that the cinema business was, was growing gangbusters because of, of Dolby digital or, right. uh, or, uh, you know, or, or, Dolby, you know, early Dolby and then Dolby SR and then Dolby digital over the course of time, every sort of five or seven years cinema would go through a, a big growth and we'd be, be able to to sell a lot of cinema systems and that would make up for maybe not right. selling as much of the, the latest version of a, of a tour sound component or something. Yeah. So when, when DP drive pack, when that started to come into some of the uh, point source boxes and then even to like the, uh, the 88s and 87s of the Vertec line, was that, market driven was that just because hey we think this is what people want or people are asking for that what kind of drove that decision you know to, you know jbl traditionally not being powered boxes to to dabble into the power box market well you know it's interesting jbl actually invented the powered speaker box in in 1965 jbl had these things they called energizer amplifiers they were three rack spaces high they weren't actually, I don't know if they were, they weren't actually rack mount, but they were roughly that size. And the JBL energizers were put in the back of the C50SM studio monitor enclosure, which was a 15-inch woofer with a high-frequency horn lens compression driver. And that was really the first powered studio monitor, unless you count the the little eight-inch JBL speaker in the in, a, in the Ampex box. Ampex had a had a little monitor speaker in the in the fifties. But the first real power studio monitor was the JBL uh, C50SM uh, energized version, and that those same amplifiers were mounted in the back of the, some of the big hi-fi systems like the Paragon, and they were mounted in the back of uh, of uh, install JBL install cabinets as well. So JBL goes back to to you know, is is if you look at the history, I believe that that's you know the, the JBL claims it on their history timeline, and I 
I believe it is it is accurate. It's certainly the the first multi-way studio monitor uh, uh, and first multi-way powered speaker. And JBL powered speakers of the 60s use those same Energizer amplifiers mounted in, into the back of them. So when you talk about uh, where did powered speakers come from, we were actually there maybe too early, <laughs> you know. And and in the in the early 70s there was the that little Yamaha uh, uh, mini. A folded horn with a, or not folded horn, but straight horn, the 4115. Do you ever see that, that box, little Tolex covered box with a, a 15 and a little radial horn on the top of it? The floor um, monitor you may know is the 2115. That okay. they, they put a little amp in the back of it. And the Altec 1221 was a little A7 with a sectoral horn on top of a 15. And they had a little Energizer amplifier. Of course, it blew up all the time and sure. that died. Uh, but Powered powered speakers were always an idea. JBL. JBL I mean, what about what about Al? Were you guys involved with the VIP speakers? VIP system, absolutely. Al should get credit for that. That was probably the first packaged. Because uh, it, it was a three way three way box. Yeah, if I, yeah. yeah. And there were Spectrosonics modules from Al's association with Las Vegas and and Spectrosonics. Bill Dilly that built those. Those uh, speaker, mo- uh, those amplifier modules. Um, uh, uh, let's see. I want to. I want to get all the threads here on on powered speakers. Well, even, even like it's late. I know I'm gonna jump here, but I guess like you know, eons and and that line Eon, of Eon market. Deserves, Eon deserves credit because it was the first molded enclosure, complete packaged sound system with an integrated. Uh, it actually had a rudimentary two or three channel mixer in it and uh, and the amplifier and it was by amp so it had a crossover and uh, the original eon was was a super engineering feat because it it had a, a a metal baffle it was a tooled metal baffle that acted as the heat sink for the amplifier the horn hmm. was tooled into it uh, you know that fell by the wayside over the following five or ten years but it was a complete uh, uh, integrated sound system and thermal system to deal with the heat from the woofer and the compression driver and deal with the heat from the amplifier. And it caused a real re- revolution. And the fact that JBL did that with that, all that extra stuff had the, the, the marketplace and particularly the competitors stymied for a couple of years to say, well, we don't know what to do. This is really complex. How are we going to do this? But after a couple of years, people recognized, well, it's really just a powered speaker. And we can, <laughs> you know, and powered speakers had developed by that time where the, you know, switching amplifiers or at least, you know, a reliability of a, of a power amp was such that it, it could it could work effectively uh, and reliably in a uh, in a, a, a speaker cabinet like that. Unlike those things I mentioned, like the Altec in the early 1970s. So that was 1995. And that really started a, relu- a revolution. Uh, it became a molded box revolution, you know, just a molded box little mini PA system. But that made that sort of made plastic safe for pro pro audio uh, because before that people would, you know, plastic is toys and that's no good and, sure. and whatever. But the Eon, the the what Eon sustained was small powered speaker system marketplace whether or not it ended up ultimately being in a wooden box or a molded box and the molded box, small P, uh, PA or musician PA speaker uh, 
marketplace. Uh, the, these days, it's there's they're kind of two separate paths. The cheap, the cheap, the cheapest stuff tends to be the molded box stuff, whether it's powered or not, and the somewhat more sophisticated stuff tends to be the the um, the, the wooden boxes in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean it's 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 price point and market driven. You know, obviously there's you know um, from a from a general AV standpoint, from a a local rock and roll scene, you know they can afford to have, uh, let's face it, not as high quality being a plastic box or whatever. Whereas you know the people who care about fidelity more are going to you know pay a little more for the wood box and stuff like that. So it, it's at at price point. You know, understanding that that the the market marketplace. I guess I, I wasn't trying to say that like DP was the first time JBL did powered speakers. It was more. My, my train of thought was in from a top uh, pro tour level standpoint, from a, from a line array standpoint, that was kind of the first time uh, that you know powered was in the in the JBL vein. There, it was a recognition that you know the John Meyer by then had committed his, his whole product line to being powered. We saw the potential of powered, and we needed to be ready to com- to compete with that. Uh, so, uh, we, we worked with, with crown and, and, you know, it tried to get some kind of a, uh, flexible concept that we could scale up and down and across, uh, uh, you know, not only the Vertec line arrays, but the, the, uh, point and shoot install boxes and, and, uh, and all of the, the high end, uh, uh, JBL pro product line. Yeah. Uh, I'm also curious, you know, so there was an interesting transition point in the Vertec um, timeline of of presets, right? So obviously when, when okay, JBL... Yeah, let's, let's, let's give a shout out to Paul Bauman. Well, we I, I was going to was gonna, I was gonna get okay. there, right? So yeah, no, absolutely. It's because um, I can I can tell you when I learned about this, um, you know, so like when I came, when I came to MSI, uh, we were probably on... I don't know, maybe version two, version three uh, at the time presets. And for those who don't know at the time, like, you know, uh, JBL would put out their presets. Okay. If you're using a crown amplifier, you use this. If you're using a whatever, you use this. And ultimately, um, what would happen, because it happened at MSI, is that the engineers would make their own presets. So, like, when I was at MSI, it's like, okay, here's the Eshai presets. Here's the Brian Beck presets. Here's the Art Isaacs presets. And and what would happen is, is that, you know, you go to this festival, you'd have Vertec, it'd sound one way. You'd go to this festival, and Vertec would sound this way. And it's like, well, what the heck, right? Um, and, yes, a former MSI employee, uh, Paul Bauman, who... If my, I understand correctly, helped help design DVDOSC, if, if I understand correctly, um, or was somehow involved in that, comes to JBL, and my understanding is the first big revolution there from, from him was, uh, I believe it was a version 4, was the first locked out presets. Um, right, yeah. Because um, I got a taste of those, so uh, on, on rehearsals of a tour, so... Uh, as we had talked about before, Steve Guest, right? So we're in rehearsals with Josh Groban out in center staging. Um, and Paul had only been, again, at GBL a short time, um, I guess enough time for him to develop, I guess, the the prototype of what version four presets. He was like, hey, plug these plug these presets in. Let me, let, me, let me know what you think. So I got to hear version four presets from Paul before they were like massively, you know, put out there and locked down. And so you could have uniform sound of like, if, if I got JBL today and tomorrow, and then it be, I remember it becoming a thing of like engineers saying, Hey, 
did you guys load version four presets? Did you get you know? No. So yeah, so yeah, I'd love to hear about you know Paul's time coming into JBL and what that meant, and then ultimately you know, leading to VTX. But um, but yeah, Paul Bauman is I know instrumental. Yep, absolutely. We we did a, a JBL did a poor job of of controlling. I you know and and uh, I I think you can you can make debates and arguments about Meyer and L acoustics doing too much controlling and and having to withdraw from trying to control the market too much. JBL on the other hand didn't do enough by any means uh, to to make uh, JBL sound consistent and high quality. And that was, that was, you know, that there's a, a, all sorts of political, uh, reasons for that, uh, within who, who is driving the bus within management at JBL, within management at Harman. Uh, but the, the, the bottom line was there was a culture of, well, we just, we, we make the boxes and anybody can do whatever they want with it. Uh, and unfortunately that, that dominated, as well as not having the talent. I believe Mark Ekenbretson had left by that time as the head of engineering. But it was also a, a somewhat of a question of, well, is engineering responsible for the presets, or is that marketing applications engineering, or what? So there's it, it, there's a you know a, a hazy uh, story there. But <laughs> but but uh, management at JBL Pro. Uh, recognized that and said we got to get someone here that's a real pro from dover to and that can full-time evolve this for us so we're not in this this terrible state and we were able to woo uh paul bauman uh i think it was at vdos then that we got him to to jump from christian to work for us and he did a a marvelous job uh you know, as he did, you know, he had worked worked for Maryland Sound, uh, developing sound systems. He had worked for for Brock Adamson, and uh, he had worked for 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 Christian, and he did a great job of of reining in the variety and dictating what is the official JBL uh, preset. Of course, anybody can do whatever they want. We don't have a a lockout box like a like a Meyer controller or something, but Sure. To have a, to have a stated uh, and and well developed and credible set of tunings uh, is what you know what made made the difference and and Paul Paul should get credit for that. David Sherman hasn't been mentioned. He should get mentioned. Uh, you know he was really the father the father of the drive pack stuff. He took over. Uh, uh, you know he 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 started at with the end of HLA and did much of the development of Vertec and Vertec as a product line, both uh, passive Vertec and in all its size variations and the subwoofers, as well as the drive pack powered versions of, of Vertec. And he, he had a long run at, uh, uh, at JBL Professional and was another uh, very key person to, to the success of, of JBL Tour Sound uh, systems in the, the the current millennium the the 2000s i guess and the other big thing too was the um <clears throat> pardon me the um the the line array calculator and um so like pre pre paul bauman it was yeah. just the it was the excel spreadsheet um uh format 
and then around the time of that version four presets is when the act like more true standalone um line rec actually kind of came came about did did paul have something to play with that or was that already in the works um Um, some of both some of both um i remember that being a pretty big change in terms of the quality of what you could do and design in a room with that with that new Mm -hmm. that new calculator makes me think of smart too you know that that software we we were the first to bring smart San Burko's smart uh, measurement system to the to the marketplace, and then it went to EAW for a while, and then it went independent. And it's you know I think it's pretty much the industry standard or default, isn't it? Oh yeah, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then was the was it my understanding that um, I think the box that. Uh, Paul helped design was the 86. The 86 didn't exist. The 4886 didn't exist when he showed up, I think. And that was his, my understanding, the 86 was like the, the predecessor to designing the VTX system. Was that how yeah. that transition yeah, that went? Yeah, was a transitional. That had a, a lot of the new things in it, but wasn't yet a, a, a VTX, if you will. Gotcha. Vertex to VTX, yeah. VT to VTX. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm curious, um, to kind of maybe put a, a, a bow on this <laughs> for now. Uh, um, what was, what was most fulfilling or satisfying for you in your career, um, being on the manufacturing side yet at the same time you're a completely different side of the business yet ultimately you're still just as responsible for the end experience that a person's going to go to a concert and experience but from a completely different space like i'm curious like as you made your way through your career um and your years at gbl maybe twofold a what was kind of continually driving you um were you ever self-aware and reflective of what you were doing ultimately for the end audience? And, and, and what was, what was most fulfilling through all of that? I know that's a lot, but yeah. You know. <laughs> no, it was, it, it was very much on my mind. I, I loved live electric music. I, not that I didn't like classical music and jazz and whatever, but uh, I loved going to shows. I, you know, I'd, I'd go out three nights a week, you know, to, to Hollywood, I live in, in, in Los Angeles and Topanga Canyon, I I wanted to experience music. I have a ton of musician friends, and being able to do that from the tiniest club with a couple of cabaret or Eon speakers in it, all the way to standing on the on the uh, the truss work with with Ron Borthwick at the US Festival with with 180 S4s and or you know standing at the Staples Center with with the uh, you know, hundred not I don't even know the number. How how many hundreds of vertex have flown from the ceiling? I I used to go to shows all the time, and I would go in the afternoon, go to the load in, go hang with Albert Lachesi from Audio Analysts, go go hang with uh, you know Dave Cobb in you know a, on a uh, a Fleetwood Mac tour or a, a Police tour or whatever, and I Dave Natal. I mean I can start dropping names, but but. <laughs> The, the I was a guy, oh, he's the JBL guy. What's he doing, you know? And it was just great for me because I love production. I love being part of, and around the musicians, just like I did when I was in college at the, you know, working at the Little Jabberwocky Club. And, you know, we had the, they had the first Mahavishnu Orchestra tour 
and I did a did my first radio live remote for the college radio station with an M67 mixer and three or four microphones on the side of a postage stamp stage with with John McLaughlin and the original Mahavishnu Orchestra. And I, you know, I have a, I have a zillion stories like that of being part of just a crew guy or just a visitor who happens to work for JBL, watching the systems get loaded in and go up in the air and and get used and come back down again. And all, all it, what is it, what does it entail? And, you know, talking to Trip Califf about, hey, when you're back in tomorrow after you have to load out for a day with Fleetwood Mac, why don't you hang that S4 array with a little bit of an angle instead of just making it flat across the, the front bumper bars? And he tries that out. And yeah, that worked better. And let's try this and that. Not that he wasn't finding out tons more stuff on his own. And I don't right. want to take credit for anything that <laughs> Trip Califf or any, you know, Trip Califf and Dave Cobb are the original elders at Claire Brothers. I guess Howard Page is still there and still working. But uh, just being able to interact with those professionals that really know how to do live sound and watch and learn and maybe make a little contribution, even if it's just going back and talking to a Don Keel or a, Don, a Doug Button or a Mark Engerbretson in engineering and saying, hey, here's what I saw and I bet if we did this or what do you think about that and letting that percolate and evolve and turn into, you know, a little change in a transducer or a new system or a new system concept, um, you know, some of which worked and some of which, you know, didn't work out so well. But, you know, the 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 the. Um, the brand goes on, you know, even now as, as I'm gone, there's, they're still doing great work. The line arrays are still, you know, the latest line arrays, the latest VTXs are, are still very good. And the, mm -hmm. the business is, you know, that, so you, you hope you, you uh, set a tone for what can be done. You hope you leave a legacy in terms of what the products are, how, who they touched when you were there, but also, what they mean to the history of the business and the ongoing evolution of the business. No, that's awesome. I, you know, it's, you, you used a very key word that I've been focusing in on with people over um, the course of talking to this and some of the podcasts is, is that word legacy. And so if, if you, if you had to define um, what your legacy was short of us just talking the last two hours, um, you know, in a nutshell, what is the, what, what is it that you want to be known for? Um, uh, I always say my time at JBL was about products and people. It's about creating products that solve customers' needs, that solve people's needs, that deliver a communication, whether that's speech or music or whatever, deliver audio communication to people and the people that you you rally that you lead that you communicate with that you respond to uh, whether those are line workers at the factory whether those are engineers or lowly technicians you know running the power test or making a a, a curve recording whether whether that's the you know a, a musician that you talk to at a club in hollywood or a club in Iowa, or a, 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 a you know leadership top level mixers and and production managers of uh, 
of bands or or uh, uh, consultants that are specifying the the latest sound system for a for a theme park or a giant stadium. It's it's products and people and being someone that can effectively uh, muster all that and rally that and and act as a catalyst for that.